old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we're working on our college answering machine again. Yes, we are. We're going to get it right one of these times. We're going to get the absolute perfect college answering machine. <laughs> so that when all of our friends and parents call us, they'll be like, oh, those crazy kids. <laughs> one of these days, we'll just start it out with, we're not here right now. Leave a message at the beat. Page me. <laughs> yeah. So we are here with your old-timey crimes, crimes from the days of yore, from yesteryear. From the before. From the before. Before something. I think we're before 1952 right now? Yes. So from the before 1952s. Yes. And Good band. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> that's, what, that's what B-52 stands for, yeah. before 1952. There you go. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, instead of the usual Patreon spiel that you've all heard, links are in the show notes if you want to go check it out. I'm going to do that thing where we ask you to tell a couple of friends about us. Do it. You like us. They'll probably like us. And we like you. We do like you. So go tell a friend, or two, or three, or seven, twenty... There's, all your friends. All your friends. There's no limit to how many people you can tell. We're not gonna we're not gonna hold you back like that. We no. wouldn't. You should have old timey crimey parties. You should. That would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so we are talking this week about the Germond family murders. Amber, what are your show notes titled? Milk and murder. Nice. <laughs> Mine is, uh, is not related directly to this case, but from another case that we'll get there. But it was thought maybe it was associated with this for a hot minute. I want enigmatic poetry found at the scene of my mysterious death. So. Well, I'll make that happen for you. Yes. That's what friends are for. Yeah. Like, if you die mysteriously, I will, I will write up some poetry and just throw it in the crime scene. Excellent. Perfect. <laughs> that is settled, and I can sleep well tonight. There you go. So uh, we are going to start on November 26th, 1930, and it's a Wednesday, and a Thursday is tomorrow, which means Thanksgiving. Yup. A time for families to gather, but not for one family. Well, they were gathered. They were starting to gather, yeah. So they lived in Stanfordville, New York. It's Stanford, New York, and then there's all these little tiny little boroughs and such around it, villages, hamlets. It's a small area, population less than 1,300 in 1930, but I think Wikipedia plays it really fast and loose with the associated people in their article on the town because here are some of the people associated with the town. Associated. They've driven through it. Yes. Alfred Mosher Butts who invented Scrabble, actor James Cagney, Orville Redenbacher, popcorn man, uh, Kermit Love, who it was a puppet maker who worked with Jim Henson, but Kermit the Frog was not named after him. Oh. <laughs> he met Henson after Kermit the Frog was created, but Kermit Love was instrumental in the design of Oscar the Grouch, Big Bird, Cookie Monster, Snuffleupagus, Oh. So pretty big in puppetry. But not Kermit. Not his namesake. <laughs> right? That's almost a disappointment. It kind of is. Oh, you already have a puppet named Kermit? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to give you a thing that lives in a trash can then. 
Jim. Yeah, come on, Jim. You couldn't have waited to name your puppet Kermit until I came along? Jeez. And also FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is from the county where Stanfordville is located. That's Dutchess County. So, like I said, teensy tiny hamlet here, 90 miles north of New York City. It's in the general Poughkeepsie area. And looking at pictures of this place, it is just, it's bucolic. It's pastoral. It's just, it's just sweet and looks so homey and, and woodsy and wonderful. Well, I mean, it's, it's New York State is, a lot of it is like that. Like, not New York City per se, but like upstate New York mm-hmm. tends to, to be... Very much like that. So the town was actually just formed in 1793. So at the time that we're here, the town has not been around very long. A handful of decades, really. 1793? Oh. Yeah, never mind. I'm thinking 1893. Jesus, never. I'm just going to go back to bed and Christy is going to do the podcast. (laughs) I mean, that's like like 13 and a half decades. You could probably hold 13 and a half decades in your hand. Cut that whole part out. (laughs) No, I'm not. I I don't know math. (laughs) I skipped a whole century. (laughs) It happens, though. It happens. (laughs) You have no idea how often in my notes I mistype, like, the first two numbers of a year. It happens so much. So, yes, it's a very picturesque area, and the Germond family lives there. So we have James Husted Germond. Not sure whether it was a middle name or a nickname. Nickname. It's a nickname? Okay. Do, Do you know where it comes from? No, but I know that everyone called him Husted. 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 I don't know how to say it. I don't know either. Let's go with Husted. Husted? Okay, Husted. Uh, He is 46, his wife Mabel, 47, and they have two children, Bernice, 18, and Raymond, 10. And they had a nice little dairy farm in Stanfordville, sold milk to at least one local dairy and probably several others. They sold milk to the Borden Company. Hmm. which is probably the same, you know, it's, it's changed, branched off and such over the years, but the same, like, Borden Milk Company dairy that we have today. Yeah, probably. They are called an unobtrusive and retiring family. Uh, they had other family nearby. James's brother Paul had a farm just a few miles up the road. One small note, James had one leg that was an inch shorter than the other one. So... That does play in, you know, we're not just pointing it out to poke fun. (laughs) I mean, we could be. You never know. You never know, but in this case, we're not. It does play into some of the ideas and theories that come up here. And Bernice was going to business school at Eastern College in Poughkeepsie and would take the bus home to the farm every day. People at school said she was shy and modest and noted that she hadn't really shown interest in any of the male students, just kind of kept to herself and did her thing, went to school, and then went home. Yeah, I mean, she was a good girl, and and the whole family lived pretty humbly. I mean, this is during the Depression, Mm -hmm. and they, they just have a milk farm, and they work really hard, and pretty much everybody held them in really high esteem. Like, they were just like a quiet, hardworking family that, that got their milk out there for the town. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, they were reliable, just good, salt-of-the-earth people. Yeah. So, on that Wednesday in 1930, James and Raymond went into the town of Millbrook, about six miles from Stanfordville, to do some business. 
That's another teensy little town about the same size as Stanfordville. They went to the National Bank where James... All right, I only saw mention of this in one article. It said he cashed a milk check for $214, but I think that they meant deposited because that amount doesn't come up later when talking about how much money he had that day. So this is what I have in my notes. He cashed a milk check for $150. Yes. Then paid a $50 feed bill and some other bills. Yeah, so I think when it was brought up in that article that he cashed this check, I think that was actually depositing it. And then he withdrew. Took 150 out. Yes, yes. That 150 would be about $2,500 today. And like you said, he made his way around town just paying some bills, getting some stuff settled before the holiday. Uh, he purchased a load of feed for 50 for his dozen cows, settled a $39 debt at a coal yard, and paid a bill for $6.93 at a gas station near his farm. They then, on their way home, stopped off at his brother Paul's farm for a little visit. It was around mid-afternoon, and they stuck around until 4.20 or 4.30-ish. He had uh, a neighbor that he also leased his pastures from, and that was Arthur Curry. He is a Canadian-born chicken farmer slash barber slash restauranter. <laughs> slash maybe bootlegger. Yes, also that. that that's another slash in there, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He has a little chicken farm. People also come to his house to get their haircut. And he owns a share in a roadhouse somewhere nearby. And then he also has the rental business. This is a... He does a lot of things. He's got a lot of irons in the fire. And so he said he came over to collect the rent, the yearly rent, $30, at 4.15 p.m. over at the Germond farm. Here's what I have about this. Because James took out about 150, 155. So after he does the $50, the $39, the $693, you know, that adds up to 95-ish dollars. Yeah. And then so if he paid the $30 to Curry, he would have only had about $60 left unless he had some other cash on him, which is a possibility too. But there are reports that he had 80 to $90 in his wallet at the time. But we don't know. Yeah, because I, I feel like after he paid everything, unless that first number he did take out in cash, you had 214 or something. Mm -hmm. If he did take that all in, in cash, and then they gave us the 150 in some articles because that's what he had left after he left town, maybe? But then a lot of the articles say he had 80 to 90. Well, yeah, okay, so say he has 150 left after he's done paying bills in town. And then he pays 30 to his neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, then he has 120 left. Okay. So it really, it just depends. We don't know how much money he actually had, but... He some, had some money in his wallet. He had least. some money. Yeah. Somewhere between 30 and $90, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Curry said that he was home by 6, but a customer coming to get his hair cut said, no, it was actually closer to 7. I had a crazy idea here. Maybe one of them observed daylight savings time and the other one didn't, <laughs> you know, uh, because it would have ended about a month ago. It was very sporadically observed throughout the nation during this time period. For instance, New York City observed it, but rural places, possibly like Stanfordville, didn't. <laughs> so maybe they just had different times on their watches. That was just an idea I had. Mabel stayed home all this time, probably getting ready for Thanksgiving for the big meal the next day. 
Bernice, like I said, took the bus home and the bus just went right past the farm. So just an easy, she just gets dropped right off there. And she got dropped off around five. As she's leaving the bus, she noted that there were no lights on in the house. And that was not normal. It was November, sunsets around 4.30 at that time of year with twilight ending right around the time Bernice would be getting home. So you would think somebody would have, you know, turned on some lights. You would expect to come home to a lit house. There were reports that a guy who was called a rough-looking fellow and also was noted to be a foreigner. He was either French, Spanish, or Italian. He was something. Yeah. Got on the bus at Poughkeepsie and asked if the route went to Bangle which is a little over a mile past Stanfordville. It did not. He got on the bus anyhow and then got off at Willow Brook, which is two and a half miles before the Stanfordville stop. So it seems like he wanted to go to Bengal, but he got off the bus sooner than would have been convenient. Maybe he just didn't know the area, didn't know the stops. Totally possible. I mean, I have completely led us astray on various trips when trying to figure out where we're getting off of a train or something. And the bus driver reported that usually Bernice was pretty quiet and that day was no different. She just was the same as ever. James, like we said, very reliable. He delivered milk to his clients even on Thanksgiving every year. But that Thanksgiving, he was a no-show at the creamery. And then the following day, too. So at first they were like, well, maybe he took the holiday off. Good for him. Yeah, right? <laughs> He should, he's a hardworking guy. He deserves a day off with his family. Then when he was still MIA on Friday, they started to get concerned. So the Borden Company sends an employee named Willard Coons out to the farm to check up on things. He gets there. It's about 9 a.m. when he pulls up to the farm. And it's quiet except for the clanking of the milking machine and the cows making a little bit of noise, probably a little upset. And uncomfortable. Yes, uncomfortable. He yells out a hello, but he gets no answer. And he goes to the cow barn and he finds out why James had been a no-show with the milk. He and little Raymond were stabbed to death on the floor, lying dead side by side. And that is enough for him to run back to his car as it would be for anybody. Mm -hmm. He flies up the road to Paul Germont's farm, where he runs screaming up to the house, yelling, Husted's been murdered! Husted's been murdered! Raymond, too! Paul and his father-in-law come out of the house, as he would, and Willard tells them what he saw. Paul then asks, well, what about Mabel and Bernice? And Willard says, I, I didn't see him. I shouted when I got there, and nobody answered. Everybody was quiet. So Paul and his father-in-law, they hurry up the road to the farm. They bring some loaded guns in case the murderer is still there. And Willard heads into town to tell literally everyone that he <laughs> could find about what he found at the Germond family farm. Paul and his father-in-law get to the farm. They find James and Raymond as they were described. They cautiously go into the house and there they find Bernice and Mabel in the kitchen dead. They had also been stabbed to death. Mabel is on her stomach. It's very cold. The blood pulled around her is frozen. Bernice is under the kitchen table with her face uh, looking at her mother. 
Rashid Olawa would later say in the Poughkeepsie Journal that it looked like she had, quote, tried to crawl away from her attacker but ran out of space. There were stab wounds on her leg that indicated the murderer was maybe stabbing her as she tried to get under the table to get away from them. And as far as how many wounds there were, uh, James was stabbed four times, Raymond seven, Bernice and Mabel each were stabbed five times. And interestingly, it seems like the final stab on each victim is right to the heart. I feel like little Raymond, he's 10. Like, he stabbed him seven times. Like, he had the most violence on him as the youngest in the family. That's true. That's very odd. Paul and his father-in-law go to Curry's house to call the police. The investigation starts. The undersheriff and the deputy get there first. And as soon as they see what went down at the farm, they send word immediately to the state police to get some help out here. The nearest barracks was in Fishkill, about 30 miles away from the farm. Willard, telling pretty much everyone in town about this, gets everybody's attention, and a lot of people head out to the farm, every neighbor, every rubbernecker. Alan Merritt, a local man who is eight at the time, would later, as an adult, follow the case religiously, collected information on it, and he commented in the Poughkeepsie Journal, the kids at the time were traumatized. There were murders, but nothing to that extent. There wasn't anything like it except maybe the Indian massacres on the frontier. So, uh, over, okay, there's differing numbers on how many people came to the farm to see and sightsee and maybe pick up some souvenirs. There's one source that says 4,000, another source says 15,000. Also, keep in mind, the population of the town is under 2,000. So this is a lot of -of out-of-towners, too, coming in. Yeah. This is our Thanksgiving Day activity. Apparently. No Black Friday yet, so this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Merritt uh, remembered his mom and aunt going to the farm and coming back saying that there were just tons of people and that the police were just letting people come into the house, had no control over the scene whatsoever. There is a thread on Reddit that is actually from a... A, a cousin. Is it a cousin? Okay. All she, right. Yeah, she said she was a cousin. I, I do have that as one of my, uh, one of my sources. Um, username Fake Daisies, who says that she was a a cousin of one of the Germans. Yeah, and she put up a write-up. And then going through the comments, there were some links to different sources that people were finding information at, but they're pretty much, the links are dead now. But you can glean what they say from the comments. uh, They found an article that talks about how badly compromised the scene was and that there was no need to even bother with prints because so many people trampled through, it would be a waste of time. Somebody took the family's Thanksgiving turkey. (sighs) And there is also a note that in the coming days, the detectives helped themselves to the pie Mabel had made. Yeah, that's a little disturbing. But I suppose somebody had to eat it. I mean, I guess so, but, I mean, give it to the Germont family if they want it. <laughs> to, to Paul Germont. Here, this is the last pie your sister-in-law made. There was also a memorial service held at the home within days, and hundreds of people went, so that's more compromising of the scene. It was just never locked down, so contaminated right from the start. Now, 
what they found and didn't find. Obviously, they didn't find fingerprints because there was no point. I don't even know if they tried. There was no mention of them ever trying, but it would have been a waste. Uh, they found blood stains in two spots, one 100 feet from the barn, one 125 feet from the barn. And that was thought to be where James and Raymond had been killed. And then the thought was that the killer then dragged them into the barn. By the blood stain that was closest to the barn, they found a screwdriver and James's cap. In the house, they found gloves on the kitchen table. They were brown cotton, like work gloves. They were slashed on the right palm and blood stained, possibly blood soaked. They found also in the house literally everything of value except for James's wallet, which was missing from his pocket. And the pocket had been turned inside out, but there were other things in his pockets, his watch, his coins that hadn't been taken, and no one else's pockets were rifled through, only his. And in the house they found such things as untouched Liberty Bonds, some money in Bernice's pocketbook, and a 20 just sitting on a desk in the living room. Just money, just sitting out there. Yeah. So if this was a murder with the intention of stealing and, and committing robbery, it wasn't done very effectively, very ineffective. I don't, I don't think it was for robbery, though. I think the yeah. wallet was just kind of a last minute, like, yeah, let's take this. Yeah, I agree with you. That I think that was very much not part of the original plan. And over a week later, somebody found the wallet. It was empty of money, but other contents hadn't been taken. Like, you know, his ID, papers of any sort that he had in there. That was found in a culvert about a mile from the house between the James Germond farm and the Paul Germond farm. Three different people had checked the culvert prior to it being found and had found nothing. So there's the thought that maybe it wasn't there at those points. They were looking for the knife and they couldn't find the knife until a taxi driver from Poughkeepsie brought some journalists out to the farm and just kind of started wandering around and accidentally kicked the knife. Like, just found it. It was about 50 feet from the wagon shed, 75 feet from the kitchen door. There's some confusion as to what type of knife it is. A butcher knife, but some places, a lot of places call it a pig shaver. If you look up pig shaver knife, you don't find a lot of useful results, or at least I didn't. It has an 11-inch blade and a 4-inch handle. So this is a butcher knife. So I, I did read something, and I don't think I have it in my notes, but it was basically like it doesn't have a normal hilt. And so that's why the glove was slashed, because blood is very slippery. Mm -hmm. And once it got on the handle, even with the glove, it would slide. And then as you're stabbing, your hand would slide up it and slice yourself. Yeah. That does speak to some premeditation, I think, the fact that gloves were used. Because if you're thinking about, oh, well, I better wear some gloves to make sure that I don't cut my hand. Well, at the same time, though, this is Thanksgiving in upstate New York. It's cold as fuck. That's true. That's like, true, too. Yeah, yeah. It's snowing right now. I mean, it's cold. The bodies found in the barn were frozen. Mm-hmm. So you could have just worn gloves to keep your hands warm or to keep your fingerprints off either way. That's a good point, yeah. And the fingerprints 
There were none. Yeah, moot point. It was wiped clean of blood, and if anybody had ever touched it with their bare hand, they had wiped it clean. They were able to track this knife to one of several Soldan's separate purchases in Poughkeepsie at the... Now, I want to pronounce this the way that we pronounce the town in Pennsylvania. Du Bois Supply Co. I do know that it is Dubois in French, but we stole it from French and then started mispronouncing it. So I don't know if it's the Dubois Supply Company or the Dubois Supply Company and blame Pennsylvania for that. Uh, so those purchases went back to June and they were able to track down every single one of them. That's kind of impressive. Except the murder knife, which mm. is what they were calling it in some articles. And, you know, I, I love preceding any sort of noun with murder. Yeah. Murder house. Murder knife. Murder knife. The theory is that the progression of events went something like this. Sometime between 5.25 p.m. and 6.40 p.m., Mabel answered the kitchen door when somebody knocked. Bernice was in the kitchen with her. James was outside working the milking machines. He'd only managed to milk two or three of his dozen cows before being attacked or finding out that there was an attack going on. Raymond was either doing homework in the house or out helping with the milking in the barn. It's said that it was highly likely that he was helping his father because he, he tended to be by his father's side helping out a lot on the farm. The killer stabbed Mabel when she answered the door and she fell there. Bernice got up from the kitchen table to see what was happening and then he stabbed her several times. She tried to defend herself and was stabbed right through the wrist as though she were holding an arm up in defense. So then something happened. Either Raymond ran to get his father, and then a confrontation happened in the barnyard with the killer and James, who had perhaps grabbed a screwdriver to use against the killer, and then that's why that was found on the ground. And uh, James obviously lost that confrontation. And at some point in all that, Raymond was killed. One theory is that he had to have been killed. This was just... an. It was an odd, odd note in one of the older sources. He had to have been killed last because he wouldn't have tried to run away unless everyone else was killed. And I'm like, he's 10. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure, he may have ran to get help, but that bugged me for some reason. Because I'm like, no, let's, let's, let's let the poor kid try to run for his life. You know? Yeah. So both of them were dragged to the barn after being killed. And there was also the theory that the murder knife came from the house, meaning that, as the Daily News put it, the murderer was in the house before he started his wholesale slaughter. So a possibility that it wasn't meeting at the door, but it happened when it was in the house. They also read into the fact that the lamp in the kitchen had been blown out, but the one in the barn burned dry. So they, they kind of gleaned from that, that uh, maybe he blew out the lamp in the house but didn't get to the lamp in the barn because he was just dragging the bodies in to hide them and then ran away real quick. So your theory. I'm going to use that to prove my theory, that last bit there. Okay, handy. I have a different order of events. All right, so sometime between 4.30 and 5 p.m., intruder arrives at the side kitchen door, is greeted by Mabel as she is cooking. Now, maybe it was Mabel's. Maybe she still had the knife in her hand because she's cooking. Oh, good point. Struggle ensues. He grabs a knife and stabs her. He's right-handed, so he stabs her in her left side. So, kills her, 
And then after she goes down, he goes outside to get husted. He was walking towards the house, met by somebody he doesn't know. A fight ensues where he is struck, slashed on the head. He falls to the ground and gets stabbed at least twice more. Raymond sees this and runs because they found burrs on his pants. They know he ran away. Oh, that's right. So he goes running away. The killer goes, gets him, stabs him seven times, probably extra because he had to run after this little kid, and then chucks him and his dad in the barn. The reason we put them in the barn is because Bernice didn't get there yet. Mm -hmm. And so when you said that the, the candle inside, the lamp inside was blown out, well, yeah, he had to hide her body, too, and that's how he did it. So after he kills her, he blows out her lamp, goes and kills the boys, and then Bernice walks in the front door, not the side door. So she's just walking into a dark house mm -hmm. where the killer is lying in wait, and so she never saw him. She wasn't sitting at the table. Mm -hmm. And that was another point that somebody had made. Somebody was like, oh, yeah, well, she was sitting at the table reading a newspaper, I'm like, she got off the bus and the house was dark. Mm -hmm. She commented to the bus driver that, oh, the house is dark. That's really weird. So this was already happening when she got off the bus. So unless, for some bizarre reason, the light was only lit for a brief moment, <laughs> it's more likely that that condition just remained unchanged. The unlit house remained unchanged from the moment she so, saw it to the moment she died. Yeah, exactly. And and so my thought is maybe even if this would have started at, say, 4.30, there was still a little bit of light. Maybe they hadn't lit the lamp inside the house yet. Mm -hmm. She's cooking. She's probably got a little bit of light coming from the fire. Mm -hmm. And so she hasn't lit a lamp. And then after she's killed, the, it darkness falls and the house is dark. And because the boys were still outside the whole time, there was never any lights turned on in the house. So I think Bernice was last. It does make a lot of sense. And there's also tied up in that theory the possibility that the killer was known to the family. Oh, 100%. Yeah, because he needed to get rid of Bernice if she saw him or if there was even a risk that she could see him to make sure that she couldn't identify him later. He couldn't run away and possibly be identified by her. He had to get rid of any potential witnesses who could ID him. Well, Mabel, who had answered the door, had actually opened the door and stepped out. So that that infers that it's somebody that she knew. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because she, like, oh, hey, how's it going? What brings you by today? Like, it was a comfort. It wasn't like I'm talking to you through a crack in the door. Yeah. Or talk to my husband. He's out there. It was, oh, I know you. I'm going to open the door wide open and step towards you. And there are also windows on either side of the kitchen door. So she would have seen who it was. Exactly. Yes. She would have known. So, yeah. It's it's interesting, the different ideas, because it's it's not too often that we don't even know exactly how the murders happened, you know, and we have to even suss that out. So the police start asking around, you know, anybody seen anything strange around town? And there had been some laborers in town doing road work kind of near the farm, but they all had alibis for the time of the murder. A shopkeeper in Clinton Corners, a nearby little hamlet, pops up, and his name is Oakley Robinson. He has a store about five miles from the scene of the crime, and he has a tale to tell 
about an interesting encounter he had the evening of Wednesday, November 26th. So, he says that a man he didn't know came into his store around 8 that evening and asked about the bus to Poughkeepsie. And he said the man kind of had like an antsy demeanor to him. He seemed like he was maybe a little jittery or wanted to get the heck out of there. Like he was running away from something. He did make some purchases in the store. He had a few sodas that he paid for with a $1 bill and a wristwatch that he paid for with a $10 bill. This is like the McDonald's that Mitch Hedberg wants to run. They sell spaghetti and blankets. (laughs) We have wristwatches and soda. I mean, it's not totally out there as far as things that you can sell, but it's still just kind of funny to me. So he, this is something that, I mentioned the $1 bill and the $10 bill. One of those was thought to be possibly bloodstained. So one of the investigators was tasked with taking it to New York City to be analyzed. But when he got there, he was a little low on funds. What do you know? I got this handy money they gave me, so he spent it. Yeah. Between the eating of the turkey and the pie and the spending of the potential blood-stained money, yeah, these investigators are not really coming out looking good. <sighs> no, they're not. No, they're not. So then someone comes forward and says, hey, I think I saw that same guy. He was walking on the road, looked like he was coming from the direction of Stanfordville. That's a five-mile walk if you were to walk from Stanfordville to Clinton Corners, although I wish I mapped it out more exactly. But about an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half, somewhere around that. And the culvert where the wallet was later found was along that Although, again, we don't know if somebody didn't toss the wallet in later. That's still a possibility because of those three people that looked for it and didn't find it. Well, but at the same time, like, I know that in my house, the kids and my husband will all look for something and it's on the counter. So (laughs) it really depends. I mean, did they have a bunch of dudes looking for it? Yes. Because that might have been the problem. Yeah, there was no mom radar involved here, and we really needed some mom radar. Yeah, you needed a mom to go look for the wallet. Yeah. <laughs> I was blessed with mom radar without even having children. But the thing is, yes, it's dark. Yes, there's not a lot of, of outdoor lighting at the time. During that four or five mile walk, after stabbing several people, wouldn't he had some blood on him? You'd think, yeah. Somebody might have noticed that. Stabbing they- is a really messy way to kill somebody. He would have been covered in blood. Yeah, the only thing I can think is a change of clothes, but even then you still have... You would have had clothing somewhere. Yeah. So it's very, it's it's odd. So this same man, uh, two local guys, gave him a ride to the train station in Poughkeepsie in exchange for $5. They were pretty sketched out by the dude. They They didn't really get a good vibe from him. One of the men said he kept hold of a crank handle the whole way because he wasn't sure that this guy wasn't going to try something. You know, smash somebody over the head with a wrench or something from behind, from the back seat. They got the guy's name, something like Florentine Chase, although they weren't 100% sure on that. And the story that he told them was that he was headed to Hudson because his mother was dying, according to a telegraph he'd gotten just that day. He said he worked at Borden and mentioned a couple of locals that he knew. 
All those things were later disproved. There were no Borden employees by that name, and there was no telegram like that sent from telegraph like that sent from Hudson. And I'm pretty sure that the locals he said he knew were like, no. Yeah, no. they didn't know him yeah. at all. They're like, I don't even know why he knows my name. Whatever. But he was able to pull out a couple of local guys' names. Well, I mean, if you're just in town, though, like, even if he was just in town working on, like, the construction crew or something, yeah, you're going to hear people talk about the names. True, yeah. And all you have to do is remember a couple, and then you can make yourself try to seem more trustworthy. Be like, oh, yeah, I know Bill that works down at the corner store. Yeah, exactly. True. Police matched up the description of the stranger on the bus with the stranger in the store, and who later was taken to Poughkeepsie. They decided these are the same. This is the same man. And so they talked to the guys who gave him a ride. They did some looking around, and they ended up with the name Florentine Bosco. They said this was a Spanish man, highway worker for a local construction company, that had been working near the Germond farm. So Bosco wasn't even his real name, though. <laughs> it wasn't, no. But they didn't find him just yet. They started questioning more people as they continued looking for him, and they found uh, Steve Lico. He worked at the Jameson Hill farm, which was behind the Germond farm. And the Daily News noted that he was Hungarian, as they seemed to do anytime anybody was not an American-born person. We got a note, if they're not what we consider the defaults. And so the state police actually had a sergeant who spoke Hungarian. So he did the questioning. Steve Liko was eventually released. <laughs> this amused me. Over the next few years, he proved himself to be pretty much on the up and up. He stuck around the area. He did move around kind of within the region he would actually tell the police whenever he switched jobs. He would just pop down to the station and be like, so I've got a new job. I'm going to be In case up. you guys are ever looking for me, I'm going to be down here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I like to think that he was just really proud of himself. He wanted to share his good news with his, his cop buddies. <laughs> it might have been like, hey, you're the only other guy I've met here that speaks Hungarian. I just want to let you know that I just got a new job. High five. Yeah. See you later, man. <laughs> yeah. That's my thought. So they are continuing to look around and see what they can figure out. Meanwhile, on December 1st, the family was laid to rest, and all people could talk about was the Stanfordville Stabber, although the Daily News called the killer the Germond Ogre a few years later. I prefer the Stanfordville Stabber. It's got that alliteration, and we like that. I have a love affair with alliteration. It is amazing. And so people definitely had the Stanfordville Stabber in mind when... There was a weird death in the area. It was about five miles northeast of Stanfordville at Huns Lake. There was a lodge called Pine Lodge, and the man who kept that lodge, named Nick Biberian, was found on December 3rd in the lodge, in the kitchen, dead from head wounds. But when he was found, he had been dead for at least 24 hours, if not longer, possibly a couple days. He was 40 years old. People freaked out at first, naturally, because now they think, okay, this is not an isolated incident. The stabber has struck again. I'll never cook in my kitchen. <laughs> right? But they were reassured when the police said he'd had an accident. 
he'd been up on, on a ladder to fix something, he'd fallen, probably stumbled into the house in a dazed state, collapsed, and died in the kitchen. But one weird thing here. There was a typewriter in the room next to the kitchen. Someone had written something on the typewriter, then left the paper in it. Iron hands that dart from the depth of the night, throttling life without warning. Who was the mysterious? And then a question mark. If it's transcribed as it was written on the typewriter in the newspaper, it's like in title case. So everything except for words like the has a capital letter. And I also couldn't tell because they used like the long dashes. I couldn't tell if they were censoring something out or if that was part of the original. Oh. It was a little confusing. So who was the mysterious could have been the original writers, who was the mysterious, and then a, a long dash and a question mark, or it could have been who was the mysterious rat bastard. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> who was the mysterious rat bastard? <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. Like, it could have been a killer, or it could have been maybe he dabbled in uh, writing and, and was like, I'm just going to type this out while it's in my head, and maybe I can turn this into a story later. Yeah, I've been there. I mean, there's no mention of him doing any writing. But, you know, if there were, then people might not mention it because they like the mysterious aspect of it. Yeah. There was an inquest about seven weeks after the death. The very night of the inquest, the lodge burned down. That seems suspect. A little suspect, yes. They eventually charged one of the men who they discovered had been at the lodge that day with third-degree arson. He was a Brooklyn man named Jack Zinberg. He claimed that he'd only driven two other men out there at their request. They'd bought gallons of gasoline, spent some time in the lodge while he stayed in, out in the car, and they'd lit the fire. But he wouldn't name them. He said, I don't dare tell. If I tell them, I'll go for a ride. They wouldn't stop a minute before putting me on the spot. I can't tell you. I can't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was amusing to me. So a grand jury dismissed the indictment and he was let go. The arson remained unsolved. That sounds almost like, like a mafia thing or something. Like, ah, these guys will put a hit on me, like, immediately. It does. It does have that feel to it. So you have to wonder about that. In the meantime, in the German case, the police managed to track down the Spanish laborer that had been mentioned earlier. His name was actually... Florentine Oispern Ermendi, and uh, they found him in Brooklyn. Weird that people keep on popping up in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. They gave him a stiff examination. I bet they did. <laughs> I bet. Uh, that was from the Dutchess County District Attorney. He said, yeah, I was around the German farm working on the roads at the beginning of November, but not the day of the murder. He did have an alibi. And they were like, well, what about these stains on your jacket? And he said, that is wine. If it works, it works. Yeah. <laughs> and you never know. Maybe he was an alcoholic. Maybe it was wine. Maybe it was, yeah. They brought people in who had been witnesses and seen the strange man that nobody knew to try to identify him. Some people who had been on the bus said, yep, that's the guy. Other people couldn't definitively say they did manage to keep him in jail as a material witness for nearly two months. And then finally, the district attorney admitted he didn't think Ermendi did it. This is kind of fun. 
The Daily News points out that material witnesses get paid $2 a day. So the county had to fork over $110 since he was in jail for 55 days. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, nearly $2,000 today. They then note that he had been deported since then, and that was in an article that was written in early 1933. So, yeah. But at least he made some money before he got deported. Yeah, made, made a little bit of money. All right, so let's talk about motives, because a lot of people were around town trying to figure out why might this have happened. In the Daily News article that I mentioned, most people thought it was a robbery. Just botched. Done badly. Some people thought maybe it was a gang hit, with mistaken identity being a problem, like somebody had meant to get Paul Germond. Well, and that was one of my favorites, too, is that I guess Paul was marked for murder because Paul had driven, like, a bunch of poachers off the land and some of those highway construction workers that were foreigners away from his farm. And Paul was like, that's far-fetched. <laughs> I loved that. That made me laugh so hard that Paul's just like, why would they want to kill me? No. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird because there's also that idea that had been happening on James, Stead's farm, uh, too, that the poachers, yeah. so maybe it wasn't mistaken identity, maybe it was the, we act, they actually wanted to kill him. So it was it was kind of confusing because it was like, well, is it a mistaken identity or did they actually get the person they wanted? I don't think it was either. I I, I, I feel like Mabel opening the door is indicative of someone they knew. But also, I feel like in a lot of the material I read, a lot is made out of that. And out in the country, people are kind of, you know, like, friendly. They're, they don't expect bad things to happen. She's not going to sit at her kitchen table and just wait while somebody knocks at the door. She's going to go to the door. I mean, there could be traveling salesmen. She wouldn't know them. She would still open the door for them. I don't feel like there's that that ingrained fear, especially when her husband's right in the barn. Maybe, maybe. So, I don't know. Yeah, so I don't know if that really tells us as much as we want it to tell us. There's the idea that it was an actual gang hit because James Dermond was considering and threatening to make a stink about the illegal stills operating in the area. Or he had his own still. And somebody was bumping him off to get rid of the competition. It doesn't feel gang hit. No, it doesn't. It's not, not really the style. Others thought maybe it was somebody targeting Bernice, a stalker or a spurned boyfriend. And Arthur Curry, remember the neighbor, chicken farmer, barber, restaurateur, still runner, um, said... He'd cut her hair the previous week, and she'd mentioned a boy she had her eye on at school. We don't know if we can really believe a lot of what he says. Just a note. Yes. There was also the uh, angry road worker who got fired for hitting on Bernice. Oh, yes, that theory, yes. There were so many theories because there's so little known. We don't even know what order the killings were done in. So there's also that question of, well, also, why? <laughs> why? That's the first question you ask. Yeah. The calendar pages are turning. It's uh, February, and the pressure is really mounting on the police, so they set up a reward. $20,000, or $360,000 in today's money. That's a haul. That would be a nice haul. So all of a sudden, there are people doing their own private investigations. Former police officials, etc., 
But for a while still, nothing happens more. Calendar pages flip past. Just imagine it. You can see it in your head. Faster, faster, faster. And then it's summer, 1932. 20 months have passed since the murder. And you have these three guys. And the head of them, definitely the ringleader here of this little investigative team, is Manning Cleveland. He is a rich dude slash sportsman slash deputy sheriff slash former police commissioner in Poughkeepsie. Lots of slashes. He had been one of those that started his own investigation. He had two other guys working with him, a local game warden and a state trooper. And I call them the Bumbling Bros. The Bumbling Bros. So he comes to the police and he has a revelation for them. He's brought a 16-year-old named Andrew Nemez, who's also kind of the local peeping Tom, who confessed to the police that he'd seen the murders happen and he knew who the culprit was. It was Steve Lico, the Hungarian who liked to tell the police when he switched jobs. Obviously, they don't have much trouble tracking him down. Yeah. It's pretty easy. He was probably just in there last week. That, hey, I got a new job. High five. And so they arrest him. And they interrogated him. But he just wouldn't break. Meanwhile, they're talking to the kid, too. They're still talking to him. And asking him questions. And his story is just getting holier and holier by the minute. Until he finally admits he had made it all up. Because Manning had told him he'd get the electric chair if he didn't confess what he knew. And that is why threats and torture only elicit false confessions. Yeah. The DA had some choice words for the bumbling bros, and they let, they let Lico go, obviously. So the public is still upset about this. There's not really been the movement, the traction that they want to see. They're getting more and more pissed that they don't have answers. So finally, they send a petition to a well-known person of the area, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They're like, well, he was born in Hyde Park, just 25 miles down the road. It's in the same county, so maybe he'll be interested. He was governor of New York at the time, and this was in the fall of 1932. It was an election year. Indeed. Also, there was the fact that he was a Democrat, and the district attorney in charge of the German case was a Republican. This is set up in the media as, you know, a political hit job, what he does, because the DA was also up for re-election. Early October, he attempts a, an October surprise. One month and one day before the election, he made it known that he was putting his attorney general on the German case. So yes, there are arguments that this was purely a political move, he just wanted to get the, the Dutchess County citizens on his side because he really wanted to carry his home county. Now, he didn't have anything to worry about nationally. He won over Hoover in an absolute landslide. 472 electoral votes to 59. Yeah. <laughs> that is a win, let me tell you. But interestingly, he didn't win Dutchess County. Hoover won Dutchess County with 54% of the votes. The district attorney, whose name is Schwartz, said that this was just mean, low politics. This was in one of the articles I read, and I could never find a resolution to this, which was really upsetting. But Roosevelt summoned Schwartz to Albany to, quote, explain his remarks. Schwartz went out there. We don't really know what was said specifically in that meeting, but it would seem that Roosevelt came out on top 
because Schwartz went back home and sent an apology letter to the Poughkeepsie newspapers, took back his accusations, and oh, by the way, that apology letter is said to have been dictated by Roosevelt. <laughs> like, you're gonna write an apology letter. No, I'm gonna write your apology letter. But I could not find that letter anywhere. I hope it's real. I looked in all the Poughkeepsie newspapers I could find, couldn't find it. And this is from the Daily News. I don't, I don't feel like they're the most trustworthy source. I'm just going to put that out there. Just, a, just kind of a gut feeling. Yeah. Well, because there was also another story, um, and I don't know if it was Daily News or not, but somebody had said that there was a love letter found that had fallen after Bernice got off the bus and it was folded up and they think that one of the suspects could have been whoever wrote that letter but no letter was ever found yeah it's it's very that was a strange little blip yeah it didn't fit with anything and somebody's like yes there was a love letter and there was a boy that was also on the bus and he had given her a letter and got off two stops before she got off and and then it fell to the ground and probably blew away with the wind and I'm just like there was there was no letter and the bus driver didn't mention anything about any of this, so I don't think any of that is correct. Yeah, and there's also all this stuff about, oh, it was written with a shaky hand, like he'd been writing it while the bus was, while yeah. on the bus. Like, who, who saw this, and where did it go? Yeah. Because it's not real. Yeah, I, I feel you on that. Yep. February 1933 comes around, and Arthur Curry says, well... It's about time I sell the old chicken farm and move out of town. And the police came and they said, not so fast, buddy. Nah, maybe you shouldn't move. You're, well, you're going to move, but you're going to move to the jail. And they brought him in as a material witness and kept him there because he couldn't make bond. I don't think you should have to be able to make bond as a material witness. I, I, I don't think we do this anymore, and I'm glad that we don't. No. <laughs> There's a time limit, and it's shorter than, you know, several weeks or months. Well, and also you don't go to jail as a material witness. Yeah, yeah, this was definitely a, an of-the-times thing. He had raised some suspicions with people around town. There was the time discrepancy we mentioned earlier with he said he was home by 6. Customer said, and I, this time was different in every single source, 6.30, 6.45, 7. Anywhere in, within that time frame, but there's inconsistencies. Oh, there. I have a whole page dedicated to that. What you got? So the official time of the murder was set between 5.20 and 6.40 on Wednesday, November 26, 1930. This timeline could be a little disputed based on, on evidence, but for most of the evidence, it suggests that it happened before 5.20 p.m. Now, this is a problem for Mr. Curry. So he said that he left his house at 4 p.m. to go to the German farm to collect the $30 rental fee. And then he returned home at 6.40 p.m. He said that the lamp was out and there was cutlery on the table. But when he came home, he told his wife that he did not collect the $30. His farm and the German farm, 10 minutes apart. Okay? Okay. It's only 10 minutes. Only 10 minutes. You were gone for two hours and 40 minutes to collect money that you did not collect. From a farm 10 minutes away, so 20 minutes round trip. Actually, I believe it's uh, travel time to and from is something less than 10 minutes is what I have in my notes. Oh, okay. All right. So the round trip is 10. Okay. All right. So the round trip is 10 minutes. Okay. He's gone for two hours and 40 minutes at least. 
And he's there during the time of the murder, which is super, super suspect. Now, a neighbor, Jeanette Coffin, said that she passed the farm between 4.30 and 5 o'clock, and she saw a light on in the kitchen and also in the barn. Now, a Roger Schiffer testified that he saw a man in dark clothing that seemed to be fixing the barn door, and he said that there were no lights on. I don't have a time for him, though. So Bernice gets off the bus and is front of the house at 5.20, right? So 5 o'clock, a light's on. 5.20, no lights are on. Now, again, Curry left his house at 4 o'clock and didn't get back till 6.40, And so, in theory, he's at the German farm Mm -hmm. during all of this. Only person known to be at or near the farm during this time was Mr. Curry. And he had changed his timing scenario a number of times, trying to make his arrival back home closer to 6.30. But Raymond Buys was waiting for Curry so he could get his hair cut and said that Curry was late and didn't arrive till 7 p.m. So now we have 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock. That's three hours long. Yeah. That he was five minutes away. Like, that. that is all so suspect. And then he keeps lying about the time and changing the times. So Mr. Germond had left his brother's house at 4.30. So he, he headed back to his own farm, Huston, at 4.30, and, and that was pretty close by, too, maybe 10 minutes, we'll say. So Curry gets there, and it's just Mabel on the farm. So he had time to kill Mabel before anybody got there. Mm-hmm. So Curry kills Mabel, Raymond discovers it, and then kill Husted and Raymond. And then Bernice comes home and kills her, and then he's got time to clean up and get home. And maybe that's why he didn't get home until 7 o'clock. Because he was busy getting all the blood off. Yeah. The biggest issue here is, what was Curry lying about? So maybe Curry didn't even go there. Maybe Curry had a lover. Yeah. And went to his lover's house instead. He needs to tell somebody that that's where he was. Because he very well could have an alibi. And just not want to ruin his marriage. That's kind of my thought. You were gone for three hours, dude. And you didn't come home with any money. So what the hell were you doing? You either killed a whole family in three hours, mm-hmm. or you've got a side chick. What is it? <laughs> but if it was the side chick, you would think that by the time that he was taken in by the cops, he would have said something because he and his wife, they were actually common-law at the time, they were separated at that time. She actually... Yeah, that had... makes me think there's no second lady then. Okay, so the other possibility is he was... Doing something with the still or rum running, you know, something regarding the. And that part you wouldn't want to tell the cops either. But far better, I think. Than murder. Yeah, to be busted for illegal alcohol than for murdering an entire family of four. Yeah. I kind of think he's a murderer, though. I have. I go back and forth on that like I always do. I'm a back and forther. That's who I am. But there were reasons that people had to believe this. There was the idea that he might have gotten pissed off if James tried to not pay the rent. Well, and Curry also had an explosive temper and had been arrested for assault. Yeah, yeah. And his son, he had a son. 
and his son reported that his dad had been violent with him. Uh, he, there was also the rumors of some disputes between the two men regarding land rights. It seems like Curry leased the hunting rights to a local hunting club for a dollar a year. And then they had put up no hunting signs to keep it exclusive for their people. And maybe he and Jermond got into a fight over that because Jermond maybe wanted to use the land for hunting too. Or... Yeah, I, I had a little bit different on that. I had Jermond refuse to allow Curry to hunt on the land that he had already leased. For, so Well, that's essentially the same. But yeah, so it it's like, down. I lease this land and now you're leasing it to somebody else to hunt on, but it's my land that yeah. I'm paying for. And so, no, you can't hunt on this. This is mine. Yeah, so they'd, they'd gotten into arguments over that, apparently. It was known that they didn't get along. Well, Curry was trying to double-dip the land. You can't run it out to two groups of people. I don't know if... if we, I have no idea what the real estate laws were at the time. Maybe it's possible because... Maybe it's possible it's something like land rights and mineral rights. Yeah, but it's, it's still like if, if you rent a house to me mm -hmm. and... You're my landlord and I'm running a house from you. You can't also rent out part of my house to somebody else that you decide that you want to rent to because you already rented the house to me. Mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of the way I'm looking at it. So, like, I understand why Husted's like, no, yeah. this is my land and I'm farming on it. I don't need them cutting up all my stuff. Like, what are you doing? I get it. Yeah. I just feel like there's a possibility it could be like how I own my house and my land, but I don't own any minerals that are found underneath. Um, because the mineral rights, you don't get those when you buy the house. So it could be something like that. I kind of doubt it. And I wouldn't be surprised. It, it seems more likely that Curry was double dipping on the land. Yeah. <laughs> with what we know of him. So, And I mean, personally, I would mine the minerals and not tell anyone where I found it. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I pay my mortgage. <laughs> yeah, right. There's also the possibility that it was Curry who had the still that James Husted was threatening to expose, was threatening, I'm going to snitch on your still. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> well, uh, but uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot there. I mean, Curry kind of, he got the side eye from a lot of people in town, but he had also done some uh, on the up and up stuff. He was active in local organizations, so he wasn't just some, you know, like, Loner sitting out at his house making murderous plans that we, or maybe he was. He had also been the deputy sheriff for a few years. That doesn't necessarily confirm <laughs> anything either, but it's just, he's, he's definitely not that kind of weirdo outcast that people think of when they think of somebody who, you know, might have murdered an entire family out of rage. I don't know. So the Pinkertons also get in on it now. Oh, God. They never sleep. They're doing some questioning. And in March, Curry is charged with murder in the first degree. And they choose to charge him with Raymond's murder. They said Raymond died second, and this is their theory. James died first, then Raymond, then Mabel, then Bernice. I think we've had almost every possible combination now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also meant to try to elicit maximum sympathy and outrage for the victims by charging him with the murder of the youngest victim. They put an undercover detective in his cell with him, and Curry told the detective he was being held for killing an IRS officer down south. So just, here we have lies again. 
And then there are the affidavits. His wife, he's 56, she's 38. They've lived together for 12 years, but like I said, they were separated now. They did have a daughter together. They also get affidavits from Raymond Byes, the gas station operator who'd gotten his haircut that day, and from uh, Miss Coffin, well, Mrs. Coffin. And so the, you mentioned that he told his wife the day of the murder that so he hadn't been able to get the money. Well, she also said that a couple days later, he said, well, you know, after the bodies were found, he said, well, I, ha- I guess we'll have to get it when the estate settles. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Priorities, dude. Uh, he also told her that the murders must have happened right after he left the farm. And he asked her to please testify that he'd been home at 545 the night of the murders. Yep. That seems suspect. Hey, lie for me. Yeah. She said he'd come home that night, hung up his coat and hat, washed his hands, attended to uh, Mr. Bai's hair. They went to bed early, and uh, she said he hadn't brought in any eggs that night. So I guess maybe he was tired or something. But this was kind of an interesting difference to how a lot of us experience Thanksgiving. This was from her affidavit. I remember the next morning, it was a very cold morning. I didn't think there would be anybody here for dinner. I wouldn't have to rush for anything, and I should judge about half past ten or a quarter to eleven. Jimmy Karos and Mr. Perry came in and wanted to know if they could spend Thanksgiving with us. Then I had to hurry more than I intended to. We had dinner a little late. I should judge about two o'clock before we ate dinner. People just showing up at your house, like... (laughs) Are you cooking Thanksgiving dinner? Can I have some? I'll be here. Okay, thanks. Like, nowadays, we, we plan it, like, weeks... A month in advance. I'm already planning it, yeah. Yeah. I've been planning it for weeks. Yeah. And then it was just like, eh, I don't have to do much because we're not going to have anybody. And then, oh, people are showing up. I guess I do. Yeah. Oh, apparently he said to Raymond Buys a little, I think it was later. It has to have been later because otherwise this would be the absolute most incriminating thing he could say. He's told him, well, you and I have an alibi. Because we were here. We, you were getting your hair cut when the murders happened. And Raymond Bice was like, eh, I don't think your timing's quite right on that. You were late. And I was at your house <laughs> yeah. with your wife. <laughs> yeah. So he is released as a material witness. And apparently there's been a cost of living increase in that particular field. Oh, no. It's now $3 a day. He's been in for 20 so he gets $60, which would be about uh, 12 dollars today. Which he would need, because he said he was broke and couldn't afford a lawyer. So on April 3rd, there is a hearing. The, sort of the preliminary hearing style thing. The state called 25 witnesses. The spiciest and most uh, te- testimony came from a local businessman who said that Just a few days after the murder, Curry said, I'm afraid I am up against an awful thing. And he also reported that Curry said, regarding Bernice, she was a hot little girl. Ew. Yeah. Right? It is very ew. I'm not sure if that was in the same conversation as when Curry said, I'm up against... It doesn't matter. It's gross. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know if it was even before or after Bernice died, but one way or the other, it is disgusting. And another person testified, 
that he had said sending a young girl like Bernice to school in Poughkeepsie would ruin her. Ah, yes, Poughkeepsie, that ruiner of women. No, it's it's letting a, a woman learn things. Yeah, yeah, That's that. what it is. Yeah. And someone else testified that Curry had called her quite a wild girl, which absolutely no other information we have about her says that. No, not at all. Not one bit. So gross. Yes, super gross. The judge made his ruling, and the charge was thrown out. He said, quote, there is too much suspicion and too little evidence. He said no jury would ever convict based on the evidence provided. He told the sheriff, even if you had a confession, there's nothing to corroborate it. And he said, a lot of men would not be safe if we could go on such evidence as this. And he's right. They have nothing. Yeah. They have a lot of hearsay. They have a lot of rumors and gossip and people whose memories can't really be relied on after a couple years have passed. And also the fact that Curry has constantly changed his story and his timeline and everything. So you can't rely on that at all. No. So... He said, the judge said, I know this is a small county and that everyone is interested, but I don't think they are interested in having it solved to the extent of trying a man you couldn't convict. And that's, I think that's fair. I think the judge was being very smart, but also a lot of the people wanted somebody's head on a pike. Yes, they absolutely did. And Curry seemed to a lot of people like a good candidate for that pike. Yes. He was the he was the top pike candidate. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with them. I feel like he was the top pike candidate as well. <laughs> yes. So yeah, there's definitely that feeling of investigation could have been better. And maybe if they'd have done the investigation. Oh better. my god. Like I feel like circus music was playing anytime a police officer came upon the scene. There are clowns everywhere. Yeah, it is really, really absurd just how badly it was botched. And the judge also said that Curry's chief trouble seems to be that he's a barber. <laughs> I didn't see that, but that's great. Yeah, I like that quote. That was a money quote right there. I know your problem, dude. <laughs> yeah, your problem is you're a barber. So he's exonerated. Curry is. He goes home with the very wife who had testified against him. They were back together. Oh, Lord. I know. By the end of the month, he was suing the sheriff and the Pinkertons for $150,000. And that's in that day's money. And today it would be $3.2 million for false arrest and malicious prosecution. He said in the suit that the sheriff invited him to his apartment. And remember, Curry had been the deputy sheriff at one point. So he felt like this was under false pretenses. And then once he was there, they kind of, uh, well, it was put in the suit wrongfully, unlawfully, and maliciously by force compelled him to the jail. It did go to a jury, and they brought back a verdict of no cause. So the suit was pretty much over. The Pinkertons' part in the investigation also cost a couple of pennies, $1,500 or about 32000 and the sheriff had said when he hired them that he would pay for their services himself. Then after that, of course, it seemed like once the bill came, he was yeah. trying to get the county to kick oh, in. Oh, oh, yeah. Let me, uh, let me see in our board meeting who's going to help cover this. Yes. Curry was uh, working to get citizenship. He tried to get it the next year and was refused. He was told by the, the judge 
to marry his wife to prove that his intentions were honorable. As far as we know that they got married because he did get his citizenship about six months later. And then we don't really have much else on him. He died in 1955. And so Vincent P. Cookingham, PhD, who uh, he did, did a write-up on this. He's actually also related to the sheriff, the very same sheriff that I just mentioned mm-hmm. in the case. He has an analysis. It pretty much sums it up, I think. He thinks that with the evidence that we have, Curry is the more likely culprit. He says, I believe that Sheriff Cookingham's instincts were accurate, but he was far too hasty. There was not enough evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and maybe even not enough evidence to make a prima facie case. He should have waited far longer, applied for search warrants, even though the case was now two years old, recruit more forensic analysis, and taken more sworn affidavits, which is a favored perjury trap, when there is inadequate evidence. The judge was right to dismiss the charges. So that is his thinking on the case. Yeah. That's pretty much what I have. I have one Mm. other thing. The old house might be haunted. Oh, a haunting? A possible haunting. I did only find this on uh, one webpage, and it was uh, (laughs) littlewitchhouse.com. But uh, apparently this woman does paranormal investigations and she was actually reaching out to the owners of said house to try to do a reading. But she did have somebody that supposedly reached out to her privately. She used to babysit for a wealthy family that had lived in the home at one point. So they had bought the house, they lived there, and then they sold it. So while they lived there, they had two little boys that are now fully grown. But at the time, there were two little boys that lived in this house. And they said that there was another little boy who would enter their bedroom and stare at them when they were in bed. She also said that if she was in the kitchen, there were things that were on top of the kitchen counter that would then slide off and crash to the floor. Ooh. She said that while the boys were in their room upstairs, she would be downstairs on the couch watching TV, and she could hear what sounded like kids running back and forth in the upstairs hallway. But when she would yell at the boys to go back to bed, the boys were fast asleep. And then when she would come back down to where she had been watching TV, the TV had been shut off. Oh, boy. Yeah, so maybe haunted. We only have one account of that, and nobody has allowed her in to do any paranormal investigations, but apparently one family had some experiences with uh, maybe Little Raymond. It was actually interesting because I, I did see that website. I kind of skimmed it, and then at the very bottom, did you see the comments? Oh, that uh, Vincent P. Cookingham had reached out to her? Yeah, yeah, and he was... Uh, she was very confused. They couldn't seem to get it straight because she, she thought he was saying he was one of the original investigators on the case. And she was like, well, wouldn't that make you like 120? <laughs> like she couldn't seem to quite get the grasp yeah. that, that he was a, a descendant slash, you know, relative. Yeah, I just thought the, the ghost story was was fun. And um, I mean, it, it's probably just fun, to be honest, because there's no other tales coming from that. But it was just a fun little end to the story, I thought. 
Yeah, it is a fun little end. I didn't really use her as much of a source. (laughs) No, I trust you on that one. Yeah. Because I did see that at the bottom. Like, you must be 120. I'm like, um... Yeah, they had a little back and forth there. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, a thing I've been doing lately is I've been looking at old cookbooks. So, we're going to incorporate it. Thank you to uh, the Libarbian for... (laughs) <laughs> Thanks to our favorite Libarbian. Yes, for her suggestion that uh, we incorporate a recipe. This is from the Altoona Tribune on November 26, 1930. Oh. And it is in a section on old-fashioned traditional Thanksgiving dishes. And so you have your standard. You have, I think there's some pumpkin pie in there, some, you know, cranberry sauce type recipes. And then you have, of course... An absolute must on Thanksgiving. Your tomato jelly and celery salad. Yum. So your ingredients here, you're going to get some tomatoes, some boiling water, a couple onion slices, some cloves, bay leaves, salt, sugar, paprika, gelatin, of course, cold water, chopped celery, chopped pimento, stuffed olives, and some chopped sweet pickles. This already sounds horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mix the tomatoes, boiling water, and seasonings. Cook slowly 20 minutes in a covered pan. Press through a strainer. Heat to boiling point and add the gelatin, which has been soaking five minutes in the cold water. Stir until well blended. Cool. Add rest of ingredients. Pour into small molds. Chill until stiff. Unmold on cups of lettuce and surround with mayonnaise. Yum. What the hell is surrounding with mayonnaise? I don't even know. Am I just like slathering mayonnaise all over the all lettuce? All over it. Just all <laughs> over it. So yes, I thought that perhaps we might enjoy some of the old recipes because we've been really enjoying them in the uh, in our group chat. You know what? I'll say this. If you make that, I'll probably eat it. Everybody wants me to start making this stuff. and I'm I'll like, do it. But then I have to eat it. But if Amber will eat it. I will, I will try anything twice. Absolutely. Okay. Right. <laughs> I might make you some tomato jelly and celery salad. Yeah. I, Yum. I, yeah, it sounds disgusting, but I'll do it. I also found out that apparently around this time period, coleslaw was considered the salad to have at Thanksgiving, which I never think of coleslaw at Thanksgiving. So that was interesting. I might make some coleslaw this Thanksgiving because that doesn't sound too bad. It, it would go well. I mean, coleslaw goes well with like, you know, chicken and mashed potatoes. Why wouldn't it go well with turkey and mashed potatoes? Yeah. Makes I might sense. make some coleslaw. I'm going to bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back from 1930. So that was your old recipe for the week. And if uh, I do make this and give Amber some, we'll make sure to... Uh, take pictures. <laughs> and slather it in mayonnaise. <laughs> slathered in mayonnaise. I like most things I put in my mouth to be slathered in mayonnaise. <laughs> there you go, boys. That's a new fetish I didn't know about. I love mayonnaise. I, I don't want a kink shame, but at the same time I do. Like you a know lot. What? There are probably worse things. So we have a shout out to new patron. And I neglected to reach out to her to find out the pronunciation on her name, so I'm going to give her two shout-outs oh, no. to make sure I get it right. Thank you, and welcome to the Patreon, Allison DM, or Allison Deem. Could go either way. Allison Dime. <laughs> so she's we, a 10. She's a 10, yes. 
So, and uh, of course, you can come find our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Lots of good stuff going on over there. Amber, tell me a little bit about the case you told us about today. Uh, I horribly named my notes Nurse Mallet because there was a group of boys going around hitting nurses. Not hitting on them, hitting them. Yes, <laughs> actually hitting them. And it's, it's definitely a fascinating story. We had a discussion about the potential motives of these boys afterwards because as the case stands, we don't really know their motives. We have some guesses. We've got some guesses. We yeah. have lots of guesses. But yeah, so what, what started as a night of drinking and stealing hubcaps turned into smacking a nurse with a wrench. And, you know, it's, it happens. It happens every Friday. <laughs> well, it was a Wednesday. Yeah, well, they were on Wednesdays. I do my, my hubcap stealing and nurse smacking on Fridays. Oh, oh. It's, it's a good entry point into the weekend. I, I feel like you should steal your hubcaps during the week, though, because, I mean, weekends, a lot more people are out and about. Hubcap theft should be, like, Tuesday through Thursday. I mean, I never said I was a smart criminal. Yeah. Well, neither were they. <laughs> so, no, they were not. So, yes, Amber told me that fascinating story, and I believe, I'm pretty sure, that that is tiny number 100. <laughs> so that is very exciting. So yes, there are over 100 tinies, and there's also our monthly extra extras as well. So you can look forward to five bonus episodes every month for $5. And so yeah, come on over and see us. Give it a try. See if you like it. Lots of content to binge, and uh, you're probably going to be needing it over the holidays. So. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, come over to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are old-timey, crimey, and all three places. <laughs> in all three places, and I put up media related to the case, and sometimes there's stuff that we didn't really talk about during the show. Yeah, the skin purse in, in one of our episodes was not talked about during the show. We found it later. You keep on calling it a purse. I think it was actually a cup, <laughs> which is even more horrifying. All right, skin cup. Yeah, that's uncomfortable <laughs> to say. Yeah, that's very uncomfortable. I don't like it. And so there was also, when we talked about the uh, Albert Gwai plane bombing case we talked about last week. We didn't really mention, like, there's a miniseries made out of the book. We didn't talk too much about that. I actually went and looked at the synopsis. And it really looks like they're trying to blame Rita. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so don't watch that. Don't watch that. But I, I put up that information where, you know, it looks like they're, they're basically saying, well, Rita was running around on him. So obviously him blowing up 23 people is justified. Clearly. Oh, yes, yes, clearly. Yeah. So yes, uh, some interesting stuff that you won't always necessarily hear um, on the actual show. Every once in a while, there's some just, you know, surprises. Skin cups. I Yeah, it's it. awful. It's awful. I hate it. I don't blame you at all for saying skin purse. Skin purse is much nicer than skin cup. There's and, just something about it that's just cringy. Yes. And also, you know, um, discussions of victim blamey rewrites of murders. Yeah. So it's fun. It's fun all around. So come there. There's also a ton of links in the show notes of how you can support us, like with our Amazon um, wish list of books you can buy, and then we'll do a case based on that and give you a shout out. There is, in addition, merch, which I need to revamp the merch page. And yeah, that's that's pretty much, if I have any more bullshit, I can't remember. So um, what you doing this week, Amber? I am uh, working a whole lot because that's all I do. And still plotting, I mean planning my Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, 
I still have to, to figure out like side dishes and stuff. So yeah, probably just that. that sounds fun. Eating as much bacon as humanly possible. Maybe I'll try to put some in jello or something. That sounds interesting. I will want to try that. Just make sure there's no onions or mushrooms in there yeah. and I'm game. Well, actually, you know what? So I made banana bread the other night and um, I made the mistake of allowing my four-year-old to pour in the chocolate chips. I was going to make chocolate chip banana bread. And he dumped the entire bag into the banana bread. So I made chocolate cake with banana flavor <laughs> is what I made at the end of the day. Uh, but it was it's quite delicious, but it is certainly not even close to banana bread. <laughs> and I might be diabetic now. <laughs> So what are you doing this week? Um, this week, I am uh, wrangling with the bastards at the insurance company um, because I was supposed to get a steroid shot last week, but then they canceled it the day of because my insurance company had not really gotten around to authorizing slash approving whatever it is. So have some fun with that. Um, Jackson is going to D.C. one night this week. So I'm going to be probably sitting here cross-stitching and uh, watching true crime because that is how I spend my alone time because <laughs> I'm just a little bit psychotic. <laughs> That's how you end up on one of those shows on Lifetime Movie Network, I think. It really is. I, I mean, I, everybody has a destiny, Amber. That just happens to be mine. There you go. So, so yeah, that kind of stuff. The Christmas shopping shall continue and um, spending time with Hemingway. Yeah, my, my baby is sick and probably we have about a year left with him. And so I'm just going to spend, damn it, <laughs> all the time I can loving him up and snuggling with him as much as he will allow until he starts scratching me. Yes. <laughs> and all the snuggles. Sometimes even beyond that. <laughs> so Love me back. Yes. So giving my Hemingway some love. And yeah, that's pretty much my, my plans for the week. I do that with my kids. I, I, I hug them until they scratch me. <laughs> Love me. Also, I have a new podcast idea that I will be implementing in the new year. So this is here is my hint that I'm starting to work on that and means I'm getting to spend a lot of time on newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Thank you, Chris Garcia, as always. Who also encouraged me in this particular endeavor, too. So, <laughs> so yes, that is our show for the week. That is the German family murders and the mystery that endures and also our plans for the week and um, only a little bit of me almost crying. So yeah, thank you for listening to our filthy words <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. My sources this week are A Forensic Solution to a Cold Case, The German Family Murders by Vincent P. Cookingham, PhD, uh, the Wikipedia page on Stanford, New York, modernfarmer.com uh, and from newspapers.com thank you Chris Garcia The Daily News Ithaca Journal Poughkeepsie Eagle News Rashid Oloa and Larry Hughes and two articles on the Poughkeepsie Journal as well I had Modern Farmer littlewitchhouse.com uh, The Cold Case Analysis by Vincent Cookingham HB Mag by Dave Levine and a Reddit article by username Fake Daisies. Lots of slashes. Lots of slashes. People were... Damn it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs>